Welcome, everybody, to the SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, your editor in exile, and I'm here with Kevin Hume, our photo editor. How's it going, Kevin? How you doing, Nick? Doing all right, doing all right. Um, I got to say, though, when you wear uh, nothing but pants with elastic bands and T-shirts for four months, and then all of a sudden you go to try on those pants that you got for your birthday back in April and you never really properly put them on and warm around. Um, you're in for a unpleasant surprise. <laughs> Things get a little tight. I don't think at least with Everlane, the brand Everlane, uh, flex. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that means. I'm, I don't know. I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm a 34 in an Everlane. Um, the, they did, they didn't have a lot. Some of my pants have more elastic in them than others. All, do you notice all jeans or maybe not all jeans, but a lot of jeans have elastic in them now. You know, I do, I buy stretchy, you know, uh, stretchy jeans, like not like they're literally stretchy, but you know, ones that have flex or whatever in them. Uh, I wear Levi's. Yeah, I don't remember I that. I always have to look for that. Like, I don't remember that either. Like, I feel like it's a fairly recent, you know, last like five to 10 years thing with this stretch technology yeah. that they must have. They weave in, they weave elastic or, um, they weave elastic into the, the denim now. And I gotta say like, so the, yeah, so I gotta say, I'm happy about it. First of all. Because, I mean, I do have some pants that, that give a, a little bit more. They're more forgiving. And when I actually do, leave, when I actually do leave the house now, um, those are the jeans I find myself reaching for. Like, because I don't wear my ratty basketball shorts into public. Unless I'm, like, going to the, to the taqueria down the street. Um, which, by the way, is probably, I go there a lot. It's probably why. <laughs> Probably why I'm in this predicament. They're your taqueria shorts. They're my taqueria <laughs> shorts. It occurred to me the other day that um, I was like, is this, is this stretchy jeans thing brand new? Or is it just that like I'm 35 now and I'm seeking out the stretchy jeans? You know, we're about at that age too where our ages are reaching our waist size, which is, you know, <laughs> you know oh, I've always been somewhere between a thirty-four and a thirty-six, and they don't exactly make thirty-fives in everything. So No, thirty-fives you know, are hard to find. Yeah. So that's a little challenging in these times. That sounds like a a cheat like that just sounds like a like maybe a Weird Al song in the making, 35s, or To Good Love is Hard to Find by Tom Petty. <laughs> 35s are hard to find. What's that song called? You got lucky, babe. Oh, anyway, uh, on a more serious note, um, this week on the podcast, we've got uh, Mike Huguenor, uh, who will be talking about his cover story on how San Francisco librarians are answering the call and helping our community as disaster service workers during the pandemic 
We've also got SF Weekly staff writer Grace Lee on the program to talk about her in-depth story on the San Francisco Boba chain Boba Guys, which has been accused of tokenizing black employees and allowing racism to go unchecked in the company. And finally, we'll be joined by Fast Times, a San Francisco band with a very strokesy vibe. They've been slated to go on tour before the pandemic hit. Uh, now they're releasing their debut single in a live stream to benefit the rickshaw stop and an Oakland an organization called Hip Hop for Change. We'll be right back. Tuesday night, almost drowning. I'm here with Mike Huguenor, the author of this week's cover story about librarians on the front lines of San Francisco's fight against COVID-19. How are you doing today, Mike? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Nick. Of course. Thanks for joining us. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. Um, so initially I heard from a friend of mine who is a librarian in uh, the San Francisco uh, Public Library, um, someone who I grew up with in San Jose, um, and had heard that he had been um, activated as a disaster service worker. Um, and around the time, um, more reports started coming out about just how many people really were being activated as disaster service workers in the city, and, and the numbers are, are pretty amazing. Um, in the city's uh, public library system, there's 900 little over 900 employees, about 902, and about 500 of them have now been activated as disaster service workers. So well over half of the entire system. Um, and once I started talking to the librarians, I really found that the variety of work that they were doing is pretty broad. Um, the needs that are, are hitting the city right now uh, are many, obviously, but um, food, shelter, and uh, adequate social distancing are really the pressing ones. Um, and the work that the librarians are doing in the city is, as DSWs um, kind of attack all those issues uh, from working in food banks to working in the pantries where food is actually distributed to, um, to citizens, uh, as well as working in the hotels where um, People are being put up so that they can be adequately social distanced or just so that they can be sheltered at all during this time. Um, and again, the experiences really uh, kind of run the gamut. You know, there's uh, it's a lot to ask of someone who's normally um, kind of behind a desk or uh, in the stacks um, to be to be going out during a uh, such a dangerous time. Um, but everybody that I talked to was was happy to do it, it sounded like, and, and really um, found it a time to really rise to the occasion for their for their city and for their neighbors. Right. And so the clause in the city contract, or I don't know what the right term is, but the language in, in, in the agreement that people sign when they um, start to work for the city in any capacity is that they 
can be activated uh, to become a dis- disaster service worker. And um, you mentioned that that a lot of people th- thought, hey, I might help with an earthquake or something like that. Um, what I'm building up to is the librarians were surprised, uh, some of them, when they, they got called to do this, right? Right. Yeah, I think really what everybody kind of anticipated when they signed their contracts. Um, and like you said, uh, the contracts... Um, this go, applies for all city workers, so it includes um, people who work for the Department of Health as well as Muni. Um, but uh, every one of them, there's a clause that says that in, in the case of a disaster, they can be activated as a disaster service worker, um, meaning they'll be uh, put out in the field, um, given an assignment like the librarians have. Um, but every person that I spoke to for this article what they expressed was that they assumed at some point, if ever it happened, it would be, like you said, for an earthquake. Um, I think that's, you know, pretty traditionally the, the kind of disaster we're preparing for in the Bay Area. So what were um, what were the people you talked to tasked with doing? So one of the librarians who had been there for uh, well over a decade Um, she has been going out into first the food banks, um, and had been working for weeks in the food banks, basically, uh, getting orders together and getting packages together to then go out, uh, either to Marin, uh, or to San Francisco, um, uh, pantries, neighborhood pantries where, um, citizens can, can get, be given groceries, um, and then later on, uh, after a short break, she was uh, reassigned to those pantries. So then she was going out and actually uh, facilitating getting people their food, as well as uh, making sure that people are actually getting to the pantry correctly. A lot of people are uh, going out there now to get food, uh, and the lines are long. Uh, a lot of people are lining up around the block or through streets, so there's a lot of crowd control that goes into it. Um other people have been uh, activated as contact tracers. Um, and there's another position, the name of which I'm forgetting now, but is sort of uh, research that goes ahead of contact tracing as well, which sounds like there's some positions being filled by librarians by uh, for as well. Um, and then uh, there's also um, another uh, worker who works in the teen center uh, was activated as a site coordinator uh, at a hotel in, in Union Square where uh, up to 150 rooms were filled um, with San Francisco residents who needed shelter uh, or to be uh, housed in some capacity. Right. So you mentioned that um, these librarians, I think the term you used was rising to the occasion. Are they um, finding that they enjoy this or that they get at least a sense of purpose out of this? Um, I'm sure they're finding that some days it's challenging. Right. Uh, I think the true answer is that some days are definitely more challenging than others. And that's kind of what everybody um, said really across the board, no matter what position they had been put in. Some have told me that uh, at the end of the days, they burst out in tears. Um, Others have told me that just being around other people again was huge relief. So really, uh, you know, I think the, the breadth of emotional responses to the situation um, is, is pretty vast. There's a lot of legitimate feelings to go through right now. And I think the librarians are feeling just about all of them. So um, what are they hoping um, 
are, are they looking forward to this being over? I mean, are some of them <laughs> thinking about changing vocations after this? Or are they all looking forward to going <laughs> back to their jobs at the at the library? Right. Uh, so as I understand it, everybody is hoping to eventually be back at the library. And everybody that I spoke to for this article, too, is, is from the main library branch. So they're all hoping to be able to see each other again, really. Um, they're all each other's coworkers and, and look forward to seeing each other. Um, but um, in the meantime, things are really stretching out. It's a little unclear. Uh, one of the workers who has been activated as a contact tracer is under the impression she may be doing it for the rest of the calendar year. Um, and um, there are others who are now being put on their second or third assignment as a disaster service worker. So really, uh, the, it's still ongoing. Uh, it, there's still a lot happening, and um, it's, it's unclear when they'll be back there exactly. But I think they're all looking forward to getting back there sooner than later. All right. Well, that's Mike's story in a nutshell. If you want to read it in its entirety, head on over to sfweekly.com or head on over to our archives page where you can read our e-edition. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you, Nick. I've got no time, nothing to say, And we're back with Grace Lee, SF Weekly staff writer and author of our recent expose on the allegations of systemic racism within the ranks of San Francisco-based boba tea chain, Boba Guys. Hey, Grace. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you? Doing all right. Good. Um, well, why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about your story? Yeah. So this story took about, I think, months to uh, push out. It's basically about uh, Boba Guys's work culture. Um, for those who don't know, Boba Guys is this really popular milk tea chain uh, within San Francisco, and I believe they also have locations in New York and LA too. Um, but they've always been really proud to be this Asian American-owned company. Like part of their motto is to quote-unquote bridge cultures. Um, but recently, a lot of employees came forward about experiencing anti-Blackness, systemic racism, and just general toxicity within the company, things that are really contradictory to their supposedly progressive values. Yeah, and um, somewhat ironically, these these allegations and accusations, um, which were um, posted on Instagram, um, ironically, they kind of came in response to one of the co-founders trying to um, make a statement of solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Is that right? Yeah. So one of the co-founders, Andrew Chow, posted these two 14-minute long Instagram videos to the main Boba Guys account. The first one was talking about uh, systemic racism in general, anti-Blackness. And the second one was talking about this, uh, quote-unquote, like 2018 incident regarding an employee who had said some really anti-Black racist remarks and who employees feel was were, he was never really held accountable for those actions. Um, and once that second video was posted, like it was like a floodgate open. So many former employees like explained just the terrible experiences that they had to go through as employees at Boba Guys and how it felt a little bit disingenuous to see these um, supportive Black Lives Matter remarks from the Boba Guys co-founder now. 
Right. And some of the um, allegations and stories that you found in your, in your extensive reporting uh, touched upon black employees feeling tokenized. And I think in some ways people felt that this was this post that he made was sort of a, yet another example of that, trying to kind of piggyback on this movement and say, we're with it, when in reality, that he doesn't really understand what the movement's about. Yeah, um, I'm always really struck by this line in um, the now deleted 2018 incident video, um, where he says, he talks about COVID-19 being sort of this like awakening for like racism for him, um, Andrew that is, and he says, quote, I knew the Asian community fucked up because we weren't getting allies. We weren't like, ah, welcome to the club, end quote. Um, and I think about that a lot, mostly because it it illustrates to me this sort of performative allyship, this I want membership to this like club sort of mindset that people might have when it comes to racial solidarity, when it comes to racial justice. I think that uh, we're seeing this happen um, in ways large and small um, across the country. There was that very cringy video of celebrities um, saying like, we're ashamed of ourselves or something like that. Do, do you know what I'm talking okay, about? Yeah. yeah. No, I do. I can't remember what the exact line they were saying was. It was like something like, I renounce my privilege or something. Right. I'm trying to find it right now. <laughs> it just, it's cringy because it doesn't feel genuine. It, it feels like they're trying to score points. Um, yeah. But the exact line was, I take responsibility, ah, <laughs> just to that's clarify. It. That's it. Um, this story was very widely read, and I wanted to ask you why you why you think that is, why this resonated with our readers so much. Yeah, I think it's because people are just really tired of these companies putting out these disingenuous brand statements about Black Lives Matter, about wanting to be an ally. When Bobo Guys did it, it was clearly like contradictory to the actual actions that they had done. Um, when they originally put out these statements, they didn't really make any tangible, like specific promises to improve their company culture until there was like significant bash backlash. Yeah, I mean, I think the headline of the story kind of says it all. the The headline is, uh, "Who is Boba Guys bridging cultures for?" Yeah, and. From my interviews with people at who had worked at Boba Guys, it really felt like Boba Guys, when they said bridging cultures, they really meant bridging cultures for white people to make Boba more palatable to white people. So white people can, you know, spend their like financial like power on Boba Guys. Um, I think a lot about sort of like their recently published Boba recipe book. Uh, there's a line in there that goes, um, when we were looking for a writer, we searched far and wide for the white and the word white is in strike through. And then they write, write, R-I-G-H-T, voice to pair with our Asianness. This is a book about drinks, but really it's a book about bridging cultures. Um, I think that line probably just says it all about what their motivations are when it comes to bridging cultures. Okay. Well, uh, I think that's, um, that's a good summation of Grace's story. If you want to read the whole thing, head on over to sfweekly.com. Um, thanks again for joining us, Grace. No, thank you for your kind words and for editing. <laughs> <laughs> of course. We'll be right back. Come on, take me out.
All right, we're back with two out of three members from Fast Times. I've got Duncan Nielsen, guitar player and vocalist, and Cody Rhodes, the drummer. Your song uh, is called Tuesday Night. Why is this your Why is this your debut single? Cody, what do you think? I I we just feel great about it. Ever I mean, ever since we recorded it, actually, no, you know what happened. I think we we recorded it in like the second bedroom in my place here in Oakland, maybe like a year ago, just a demo on a voice on a voice memo. And then about six months later, we were we were hanging out with our friend who's a photographer named Brett Walker, and Andrew was playing that through his Bluetooth speaker, the demo. And we had I I, I personally had forgotten about that song, and I just got so amped about it and just became obsessed. And then we made it we made a point to record it soonly after that, and. Uh, yeah, we've just been excited ever since ever since we relearned about it. I guess I'd also add that it just, you know, it brings the hot heat. It's fun. It's upbeat. And just felt like a, um, a breaking down the wall kind of vibe that doesn't necessarily exist in our other tracks. But, um, yeah, it was just kind of like it has that energy that feels like you're announcing that you're here in a way. Okay. Um, and so is there, is there an EP, uh, soon to follow or what's the, what's the plan there? The album's dead, man. (laughs) The The format's gone. Yeah. (laughs) I, I mean, I think our strategy is to go just, you know, one single at a time and maybe it'll build to an album, but I don't, I don't think we have necessarily hopes for that because I don't feel like packaging an album is maybe all that critical for a new band. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, as I understand it, um, all of you have uh, earned your stripes in one way or another on the local scene. Um, Tell me about some of your previous bands. Tell me where you're all coming from. If you want to make, if you want to kind of go into me and Duncan's history, we we've been playing together since I think 2012 or 2013. We used to play in a band called city tribe. I don't know how how I would describe that. I always kind of described it as like a beachy version of the Eagles, but I I think some people don't like the Eagles and some people don't like the Beach Beach Boys or something. But it's it was very vocal harmony, Laden, just pop songs. Okay. But I don't know. After that, after that, we kind of killed that band on accident when I got absorbed into being the touring drummer for Geographer, and I brought I brought Duncan into the life band there, and that kind of between all the other projects we had going on, City Tribe kind of fell through the cracks, and then. We did that for a couple of years together, and then Duncan bailed, I think, in 2017, 2018? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we went we went about a year and a half not playing together, and then he and Andrew had been writing songs together, and I had heard about them, and I thought, I was just very curious because I was such a huge fan of both of them. And luckily, they asked me to, to play behind them, and that's kind of how Fast Times was born. Right on. Yeah, I think I think it was at the point like Andrew and I had been kind of jamming through songs aimlessly, kind of like with you know no goals in our in our crosshairs. And I think we you know obviously knew Cody and knew Cody was a great drummer, and it was like we need to add that extra element to actually just do something. So introducing mm-hmm. Cody was more or less the catalyst to just like take action. So uh, you are introducing this song Tuesday night in a live streamed fundraiser for the Rickshaw Stop and an Oakland organization called Hip Hop for Change. Tell me a little bit about this event. The event is going to be super, super cool. Can we swear on this podcast? (laughs) 
Just trying not to you swear in that, in that moment. Whatever fuck you want, man. <laughs> it's gonna be super fucking I can cool, hear it. man. Um, yeah, we partnered with Rickshaw Stop to basically release the song and talk about the song, but also um, generate some some cash flow to keep them afloat because obviously they can't put on shows and make money at this moment. And we like them and want them to stick around. Mm-hmm. So that's what that partnership's all about. And we'll also be partnering with Hip Hop for Change. And we'll be looping in uh, Coffrey J, um, who runs that organization, to come on the live stream and chat with us about what they're up to. And, and yeah, it's like a super timely moment to get folks like them involved and just um, to really put some, put some love and energy into the bear and music scene on top of all of it well um duncan and cody i want to thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast in uh, on short notice uh no less and um we will play you out with a little bit more of tuesday night thanks for joining us thanks nick yeah thank you nick at the break of